Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do so from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we are presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. And while normally we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and, of course, on RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today, we have back our highly popular guest, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, who helps oversee an intensive care unit at a hospital in Northeast Indiana. He's been caring for COVID-19 patients. And uh, Eustace, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Uh, Thanks for having me back, Tom. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris. Good to hear from you. Many of our astute (laughs) listeners know that um, there's another Dr. Fernandez that we've talked about on this show. So perhaps we should call this doctor, Dr. Fernandez, the greater or the lesser or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, my my brother uh, Ashley is a pediatrician, and and I'm I'm proud to say was just uh, uh, voted and uh, professor of the year at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and Public Health. Um, so so he is uh, clearly uh, the greater. <laughs> um, and the last shall be first. So we're very proud of him and uh, and thankful for his work in the world of pediatrics and Amen. ethics and ethics. Amen. So Eustace, it's been four weeks since you were here talking about COVID. So what are the main new things you want to talk about since then, at least that have happened in the ICU where you work? Yeah, so um, it's been an exciting time and an exciting time that we have sort of faced with uh, with a little bit of trepidation and a whole lot of heartburn um, as we get ready to uh, reopen and, and we made uh, a lot of effort in trying to plan, you know, the right way to um, not just take care of COVID patients, which has been the vast majority of our work the last, you know, eight, nine weeks, but also um, begin to attend to the many needs of patients who do not have COVID, but are uh, still in need of medical care. Uh, So trying to figure out the best ways to, again, continue to reduce uh, risk to our staff, to our patients, um, and to provide care that is needed. In our ICUs, um, we are uh, beginning to fill up again, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you never want anyone to be critically ill, but we're beginning to see um, our COVID patients siloed in one section of the ICU, um, which we call a COVID zone, and, uh, and then having uh, the rest of our ICUs open uh, to take care of other critically ill patients who are still out there, still out there having their heart attacks and strokes and severe pneumonias and things like that. Um, so that has been an interesting um, development is actually trying to have these two cultures, you know, a COVID culture and a non-COVID culture exist within the same um, hospital and sometimes in relatively proximate geographic space. Uh, so that's been a challenge um, to make sure that people are separated, supplies are separated, patients are separated. Nurses who care for COVID patients are different than the ones who are caring uh, for the other intensive care unit patients, that they all have quick access to the medications they need from our pharmacy. So it's added a layer of complexity to uh, care on uh, all the way around. Um, and I, I think anytime you're looking at these things, it's a good time to reexamine 
all of our processes and make sure they're as efficient and safe as we can for our patients. Uh, Eustace, I'm on the Indiana state coronavirus map right now, and it shows that statewide, which is where your hospital is, uh, almost 40% of ICU beds are available. And the ones being used, only one in four are COVID patients. And with regard to ventilators, it says over 80% of ventilators in the state are available and less than 6% are being used by COVID patients and over twice as many by non-COVID. Does that fit your experience? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think what we're seeing is that our overall number of COVID patients in the hospital, hospitalized COVID patients, non-ICU and ICU patients are increasing slightly. And, and that's sort of the consequence you can imagine when you begin to open up the economy and people are actually venturing out of their homes. And this, this model of shelter in place, which really in the end is, is kind of unsustainable for any culture, um, is, is slowly being phased out. Um, and so we're seeing an uptick in the number of patients who are testing positive for COVID. And some of them are critically ill. Some of them are, are ill, um, but coming into the hospital because they need oxygen, um, because you're not sure which way they're going to turn. And, and then some of them are in this category where we know they have COVID and they're coming in for something else. So an example of that would be a patient who came in with respiratory complaints about eight or nine weeks ago was diagnosed with COVID, but during that hospitalization was found to have a colon cancer. And he needed to come back in and have surgery for that colon cancer, but still tested positive for COVID. So for his, the purposes of his surgery, he was in the COVID unit. So he tested positive so by PCR had, or by blood test? By PCR. Again, by PCR. eight weeks later? Yes. Isn't yes. that unusual? Um, you know, we're... <laughs> There's a lot of variability in, in people who are testing positive um, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there was uh, some data coming out of South Korea as to whether or not what we're testing is actually finding shedded non-infectious virus. So actually, uh, mm. if you will, dead virus. And, and, and maybe that's what we're finding. But, but we had this beautiful uh, older woman who I think was in her 90s who we could not get out of the hospital. I mean, she looked healthy as the day is long, but no nursing home would accept her because she continued to test positive. Mm. Um, and so it is kind of a conundrum because you don't know um, because of the detection of, of um, the PCR uh, is so sensitive. Are you detecting something that's actually infectious? And, and I think we don't have an answer for that. Eustace, we've talked with other guests about this statistical phenomenon. I'd, I'd be interested to get your take on it, this idea of, of with as opposed to of. So the 90-year-old patient with colon cancer and COVID virus uh, dies. Uh, how is Indiana, as an example, how are they coding or accounting for that death in the data? Is that a, is that a coronavirus death or is that a death by natural causes? Uh, and yeah. how, how do we interpret well, that? So, so, so let's, you know, I, I think it has to do with the certifier, you know, so the person certifying um, death has to be sure that they understand the mechanism of death for the patient. So um, I've had patients who have had the cytokine storm spun out of control and unfortunately passed away. And when I certify their death for the state, I use uh, COVID-19 as as the ultimate cause of death. Sure. Now, we can look at that 
And in the, in the case we just talked about, if that patient ultimately dies of colon cancer um, during their hospitalization, personally, I would certify their cause of death as being colon cancer, death due to colon cancer. And then there is a, a section in the death certificate where you can say other contributing factors. And, and there's where I'd put COVID-19. Because keep in mind, you know, COVID-19, um, though in its most deadly form is a lung disease, um, it's a whole body disease as well. You know, you become debilitated, you may suffer delirium, you may uh, have kidney failure, you may have compromise of heart function. And all of that might affect my patient's ability to successfully navigate their way through a big surgery like taking out a colon cancer. Mm. Yeah, that's an important point. Um, and I think a takeaway we've um, we've gotten from many of our guests is just today, everyone is an amateur epidemiologist and statistician. And uh, the numerator and the denominator and some of these numbers that we've seen thrown around are very complex and complicated. And before anyone goes rushing off with what they feel like is an answer, they need to carefully peel apart what goes into uh, to, to those two numbers, don't they? Right, right. You know, so for the C for example, the CDC two days ago um, released modeling based on five different scenarios, and one of them is kind of worst case, one of them is best case, but the fifth scenario, which is the most uh, important, is based on data through April twenty ninth, twenty twenty, and in that uh, data, it's it's very interesting when you look at it. They estimate about thirty five percent of of infections. Um, with COVID-19 are asymptomatic. They relook at uh, some of the data regarding mortality and, and it confirms what we thought about uh, the risk of, uh, of death being extremely low if you're under, uh, under 50 or under 64 for that matter, still extremely low um, in terms of case fatality ratio. Um, Symptomatic hospitalization, again, very, very low if you're under the age of 50 or 60. Uh, so these, these numbers are a little bit surprising. Um, and and uh, the water uh, seems to get muddier with each chunk of new data we get. And, and hopefully at the end of all of this, you know, um, we'll be able to sift through all this data and figure out what's important, what's not important, what was true, what was false, and make our predictions, um, our modeling better uh, next time around. So Eustace, uh, before we went on the air, we were talking about the CDC issuing uh, guidance that picking up the virus from surfaces is not as easy. And you see all this stuff in the news, but I just went on the CDC website, and it's not a very... Um, uh, uh, a very helpful comment, except that it says it may be possible that a person can get COVID-19 by touching a surface or object that has the virus on it and then touching their own mouth, nose, or eyes. This is right. not thought to be the main way the virus spreads, but we are still learning right. more about. So it got a lot of news for a statement that doesn't sound very definitive. Yeah, it's, and it's not. It's not a very robust uh, statement and and when you look at the statement, they do not cite a lot of data to support this. I think that this sort of dates back to when we first started this. There was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where they talked about you know how long does it last? Does the virus last? Can it be detected on cardboard surfaces or right. uh, air vents or copper? And and the fact that you can detect the virus doesn't. Uh, necessarily mean that it is infectious at that point. It just means that you know it's there, okay? Right. Um, but I think the point is, is 
in, in my mind is number one, would it change my behavior? Mm. So that guidance from the CDC really doesn't change my behavior. Um, I'm still going to be careful about what I touch. I'm still going to try and avoid touching uh, my eyes, my nose, my mouth. Um, I'm going to wash my hands really, really well. And so I'm glad if, if this is true, and I think it probably is because it, it appears that the main mode of transport for this is in droplets, right? Mm. But I don't think that this is particularly useful and, um, and I don't think it should give anybody kind of a, a sense of more or less security. It just means the same things are still true. You know, be careful about what you touch. Don't touch your eyes. Don't touch your nose. Don't touch your mouth. Um, wash your hands. What it seems to be boiling down to is that um, the rate of infection and severity of infection seems to be related to things like how much time am I exposed? How close am I? So time, distance, and then amount. So how, um, how much of the virus am I, am I receiving in one big dose or one big bolus of virus? And those seem to be the major determinants in terms of who gets infected, how symptomatic they are, how severe their disease is, et cetera. You know, it would seem that once again, prudence is uh, wins the day, doesn't it? Because even the CDC is not immune, pun intended, uh-huh. to statements that are just not quite ready for publication. Uh, and we certainly wouldn't want listeners to read that CDC statement and, and suddenly think that disinfecting is no longer necessary and hand hygiene is no longer necessary because while the COVID virus pandemic is new to us, viral infections are not new to us. And we, we have a great deal of experience and understanding about how those infections occur. We wouldn't want to toss that out the window because of, um, you know, maybe a less than perfectly thought out statement from the CDC. Right. And, and, you know, we have to, uh, take stock of the fact that these are all fallible sources, right? Um, if we look at simply at the timeline of where we begin and where we are now um, with this disease, you know, um, is it aerosolized or is it a droplet? Um, can it be even simple things like can it be transmitted human to human um, going way back to, uh, you know, December, January? Um, questions about uh, what kind of mask you need. Do you need an N95 all the time? Do you need an N95 when you're doing an aerosol-based procedure? Are cloth mm. masks of any value? And, and all of these things have changed over time. The guidance we've received is based on um, rolling accumulation of data uh, and experience rather than, you know, there, there are sort of uh, conspiracies run amok about the masters of the universe attempting to control our lives. And, and maybe, maybe there's a little bit of that true, but, but I, I tend to, uh, to, to blame the, the majority of these things on ignorance rather than malice. Well, you just, let's take you out of your, your doctor at the bedside ICU role and make you a public health policy expert uh, and say, based on the numbers that seem to be maybe stable, maybe dropping slowly, do you think we're opening up too quickly, maybe not quickly enough, maybe right, right where we should be? What, what are your feelings there? Well, I think, you know, it's obviously variable state by state. And we look at things, we look at states that have done very little um, in terms of closure, um, like, you know, uh, and, and have had very aggressive platforms for reopening. So I'm thinking of North Dakota, uh, Florida, Texas, uh, Georgia, and these places 
have actually done okay. Indiana, um, there was a New York Times article last week about um, about Indiana as a as a model for kind of prudent opening, which I was I was gratified to see. So I, I think we're doing an okay job. I think nobody expected these cases to go to zero, um, but there's an acknowledgement um, that in an economic sense we need to open, in the social fabric sense we need to cautiously reopen, and um, and in the healthcare sense we need. Uh, to reopen. So there was an, an article that I was uh, just reading about the consequences um, of delaying cancer surgeries. You know, and I, I've seen this in my own practice, a cancer surgery that was scheduled was delayed three months um, from the time of diagnosis. And, and they're already beginning to track um, underdiagnosed or undertreated cancers, cancers that are upstaged from, you know, a stage two, which is conceivably a curable cancer to a stage four, which is an incurable cancer and progression of disease. So this was just published in the Annals of Oncology uh, last week. And it's, it's pretty um, impressive uh, data. Uh, and so there are, there are real life um, consequences um, to delaying other aspects of care. You know, I'm seeing cases that previously were considered to be purely elective, um, now um, being semi-elective or even urgent. Uh, we see the number of mammograms dropping 80% in the last nine weeks, the number of colonoscopies, screening for colon cancers, dropping 90% since this began. And there are gonna be um, uh, ill consequences down the line, I'm afraid, uh, from delay in diagnoses. Eustace, four weeks ago, uh, going back to treatment and prevention, you mentioned the possibility that certain supplements or vitamins might be helpful to patients either not getting COVID or patients with COVID. You mentioned vitamin C, thiamine, zinc. Do we know whether those are worthwhile or not? You know, we we don't. Um, I think it's... it's uh, you know, one of many approaches that may uh, be helpful is probably not altogether harmful. Um, one thing that's probably worth talking about is zinc and whether or not um, it plays a role in other modes of therapy. So there was a large uh, multinational trial um, just published in The Lancet, um, which looked at hydroxychloroquine, uh, chloroquine, and plus or minus azithromycin, which is the antibiotic that's in right. the Z-Pack that many of us have been on. And what they sh uh, showed was a trend uh, or, or a clear um, worsening in outcome when they looked at um, patients who received any of those cocktails versus uh, those who did not. Yes. So one of the questions I had yes. in reading that whether or not they received zinc supplementation. We know that many of our uh, at-risk patients, and uh, particularly the elderly, uh, have nutritional um, deficiencies in things like zinc. We also know that, uh, that one of the ways in which hydroxychloroquine may help um, combat this virus is that it may make the virus more permeable to zinc, which in turn does not allow uh, the virus to replicate further. So there are things that are, are nutritional that probably matter. Um, do we have enough data to parse all of that out? Probably not. Um, centers that are, are very involved in these trials um, have, have pretty strong opinions about what works and what doesn't work. But what we're finding is that all of the national and international um, 
societies, whether it's the society for, uh, that uh, offers advice on infectious disease or pulmonary medicine um, or pharmacology, are recommending all of these things be done in the context of clinical trials so that we can finally have some understanding of what works and what doesn't work. Vitamin D is another one that's been getting a lot of press, and perhaps that's because uh, several years ago, I think 2017, there was an article on how vitamin D can help in respiratory infections, particularly if patients previously had a low vitamin D level, below a, a, a measure of 25 nanomoles per liter. And if they took vitamin D, they did better, but the people who had normal levels and took more didn't necessarily do better. Is, is that right? Or am I missing part of that? Yeah, I think, I think that that's right. And, and I've read uh, a couple papers that are mostly international and um, uh, so non-U.S. experience and correlations between vi measured vitamin D levels and outcomes. And it does appear that people who have lower vitamin D levels tend to do a little bit worse. And, and whether that's a direct causation, again, hard to say. But there are thoughts that, um, that vitamin D is important in reducing certain things that are particularly toxic or particularly damaging about the virus. Certain uh, proteins that exist within the virus are uh, that are particularly bad for the body are diminished if vitamin D binds to them. So someone who is deficient in vitamin D uh, may not do as well. And so right now, the recommendation has always been, well, has been for years now for vitamin D supplementation, that if you're an adult in America, if you're not getting enough from food or don't think you are, take like 400 to 600 units a day. And if you're over 70, take 800 units a day. Uh, and that will right. get you into a normal, healthy range. Right, right. And, and, you know, we've talked a couple times about how the bedrock of treatment is still going to be supportive care you know, giving the body oxygen when it, when it needs it, um, having a proper diet and eating foods as close to their natural form as possible, um, keeping your blood sugar under control, trying to maintain a, uh, a normal body mass index. Um, and so, so the things that we associate with, with good health in general are probably associated with uh, doing better if you become infected uh, with uh, COVID-19. Eustace, we've heard and um, our, listen, our listeners have been bombarded as well about um, using serum from infected people. If we could test more people, we'd find people that were now immune and we could take their serum and it would be, it would essentially be a vaccine as it's sometimes presented. Um, using this so-called convalescent serum from patients who have had the disease to treat patients, where are we with that thinking uh, then versus now? So I am told um, that the first sets of data from New York's convalescent plasma experience is getting ready to be published. Mm -hmm. So the short answer is we don't know. Um, it is another tool in the toolbox right now. And our ability to get convalescent plasma um, has, in the last, since we last spoke about it four weeks ago, has rapidly increased. So our, our hospital, for example... Uh, is working under a study through the Mayo Clinic. Um, and our first patient, we tried to give uh, convalescent plasma for. Um, it took seven or eight days uh, to get the plasma. And this is 
obviously less than ideal in these patients who are so sick. And as with most interventions, we're thinking that the sooner we intervene, the better they're going to be uh, or the more benefit it will have to the patient. So um, what, we're f- what we're finding now, now that the process is, is rapidly improving, is that we are able to get convalescent plasma usually within 48 hours um, and patients are receiving it. Now, is it the magic bullet? Um, we don't know, uh, but our experience in the ICU anyway is that we are doing many things at once. So the same patient who receives convalescent plasma may also be um, receiving uh, remdesivir uh, and may also be receiving uh, Ectemera, which is an interleukin-6 uh, inhibitor, which is associated with the cytokine storm, and may also be enrolled in our trial of adult stem cells uh, for the treatment of COVID-19 pneumonia. So, so there may be four different interventions that may change their outcome. Now, parsing out in the end which one really helped them may be hard. It may be really hard to do. Um, but as, as someone who takes care of patients at the bedside, um, you sit there and you say, well, um, my patient is doing poorly. Uh, how can I justify withholding anything from them that's available? So you, you give them sort of everything that's available in the armamentarium and, and, and try and, and help that one individual who's right in front of you. And we've talked with several guests uh, throughout this pandemic on this research phenomenon and how difficult it is for our listeners to sort of really get in the shoes, if you will, of re- researchers. And, and our holy grail of the randomized double-blind study, um, that doesn't exist yet. It, there's not, there hasn't been time. And I, I think your point is a, is a valid one. You at the bedside don't have time to be thinking about policy and populations you're thinking about the man or woman in front of you who may be dying. And so giving them all sorts of interventions could make for good clinical care, but it makes for bad publishable science. And, and we've struggled. Uh, I think people are getting a little better at, at being prudent and maybe a little healthy uh, skepticism about the data that they hear about. But it's been a huge challenge throughout this pandemic when it comes to reading research results. Right. And, and you're seeing all of these platforms where you can you can publish non-peer-reviewed experiences. Right. And, and, and you know, you have to uh, take those with a grain of salt, but there's really no way to understand other people's experience uh, about a disease that we know um, is a dangerous one and there is a, a real uh, dearth of data, um, usable clinical data uh, to treat patients. Eustace, last time we spent a fair amount of our uh, efforts discussing the blood clotting disorder that goes on Mm -hmm. in small vessels and maybe larger vessels. Is there anything new with regard to understanding or managing it in the last month? So what we're seeing in terms of people's experience, again, is that this may be a complication that occurs early. It may occur late. And one must just remain vigilant. Uh, it is recommended that patients who are admitted to the hospital for COVID-19 receive what we call preventative dose or prophylactic doses of blood thinners. So uh, we're certainly giving those. We're giving them at higher doses than we would give them uh, for a non-COVID patient. Uh, when we put them on full blood thinners, it is not 
um, is not clear. Uh, some people are following a variety of parameters um, to say, okay, the patient's blood is thickening and this might raise uh, the raise the alarm and, and you might decide to put the patient on full blood thinners. But again, um, the CDC's guidance on this and, uh, is, is really uh, murky. And it says, well, you know, we don't necessarily recommend um, checking to see if people's blood is becoming more sick daily. Um, but if you find it, you might want to consider full blood thinners, um, but we're not really sure. And all of this, again, needs to happen within the context of a clinical trial. And if you read any of these statements from any of these major organizations, um, they're very reluctant to recommend really anything beyond good supportive care outside the uh, domain of a, um, a well-designed clinical trial. And there's, there's some sense to that um, because there are ill consequences of having someone's blood too thin, you know, mm -hmm. most obvious of which is uh, bleeding. A bleeding complication. And I think I'm sure that that's got to be difficult maybe for a grieving family to understand that um, we, we can't just throw treatments at a patient not knowing what right. the consequences are out of a, right. a sense of first do no harm um, because sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something that's wrong. But it can be very frustrating right. when things are happening so quickly. Um, that's right. And a loved one is suffering. And, and, you know, one of the things we have emphasized a lot is, is taking care of the patient's basic needs. You know, mm. are they breathing? Are they receiving nutrition? Are we supporting them adequately with the ventilator? Um, and, and one of the emerging problems uh, people are beginning to shift discussion to is what recovery looks like. Uh, because the severity of the delirium, the disorientation that someone gets from this disease in recovery um, is, is something a little bit different. Uh, and some of it's related to the medications we give, the prolonged periods of time that they're sedated, sometimes even medically paralyzed in this comatose state, and then they emerge. Um, there are people who believe that there are these small blood vessel changes that are happening in the brain the whole time uh, that affect the patient's ability to recover if they make it through the absolute critical illness. Normally, uh, in our ICU, we like to do something called uh, what we call an A, B, C, D, E bundle, where we, uh, the A and the B are awake and we let the patient breathe on their own for a little while if they're on a ventilator. We try and coordinate those things. So that's A, B, and C, um, awake, breathing, coordination. Uh, D is delirium. So we're screening them for delirium, which is this state of waxing and waning um, appropriateness of brain function. And we're adjusting medications to try and reduce that because we know that that has real world consequences. And then the last is early mobilization. So that's the E. So the early mobilization part and the delirium screening have really suffered um, because we're trying to have as little contact as possible with patients. We're trying to keep them as calm as possible so they don't dislodge a tube or become disconnected from the ventilator. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that makes the back end of recovery, if they survive the experience of being on a ventilator, um, where do they go from there? What does life look like for them going forward? Um, because some of these patients are, are fairly young and, and they need to um, be functional and, and they have, you know, families that they need to get back to and, and jobs and things like that. So, so a lot of the attention now is, is shifting um, not just for, to treatment of the acute phase of the disease, but also what happens beyond that. And I, I think that that's a, a good thing that we're talking about that. So Eustace, um, 
we've talked before about how uh, it appeared as though once someone was on a ventilator or intubated, as we say, that it didn't look good for their survival. Uh, and there was some pretty scary data from New York uh, early on, especially that if you ever became ventilator needed, that survival was, was poor. Um, do you have a better idea of what that's like today? Um, and if you need a ventilator, the probability of surviving, has that changed? So I think that the experiences from uh, the Chinese data and New York are sort of very specific for a particular time in the timeline of the pandemic. And it, you know, I don't think you can say that just because it was their experience, that's going to be ours. And I, I don't think it has been ours. Um, we have had uh, some success in getting patients off the ventilator, uh, getting them rehabilitated, getting them either home or to a rehabilitative um, center. So I do not think that it's in the 90% range uh, that, was found in the in the study that was published with the uh, New York experience. Uh, it's certainly higher um, in our experience than with other diseases that require uh, the ventilator. Um, but I think that uh, we have to try with every patient. We know that every patient is a, is is different, so we have to try and meet that patient's specific needs. Um, and and when we have these conversations on an administrative level, uh, my nightmare is that is that somebody who um, God may have other plans for may want to you know they may uh, have a chance of surviving. Um, I think uh, if they think oh well if I go on a ventilator I'm going to die for sure. There's 90% certainty that I'm going to die. Um, that may influence their advanced care plan. That may influence how aggressive they let the, um, the medical team be with their care, mm -hmm. and that may lead to loss of life. Eustace, you mentioned before about how hypervigilant the staff has had to be in the ICU. Uh, one of the examples was you said normally you could take um, someone off a ventilator, pull the tube out in about 30 seconds, and last time we talked, you said it took 15 to 30 minutes. I I'm wondering two things. One, has that changed? And two... Is there an emotional toll on you and the rest of the staff for having to be hypervigilant for so long? Do, do you start to get sloppy? How, how do you stay on your game? Yeah, so I think that when I'm actually working with known COVID patients, I am kind of on, on uh, high alert, you know, so I'm paying attention to every little bit of it. And, and, there are people around who are kind of watching you, encouraging you, um, looking at things. And, and, and if you're doing something wrong, um, there, there is staff around will say, Hey, um, you know, you touched your nose or, you know, you, um, <laughs> left your, you left your booties on when you, when you walked out of that patient's room. And, and I think that because we know who those patients are, you feel in some regards a lot safer when you're actually in those units. But when you're out on, you know, in a regular ICU where someone may be sick with, you know, a bleeding ulcer, for example, but may also have COVID, you still have to be vigilant. And I think that those are the areas where um, we need to constantly remind ourselves that, uh, you know, that number for that the CDC just published, it's possible for a 35% uh, um, asymptomatic infection rate. And and hand hygiene is still important in those non-COVID patients, and masking is still important in non-COVID patients. And I, I think that those are the areas that 
um, are really fatiguing. You know, I, I've had instances, I'll, I'll confess, where I thought, gosh, this patient is here for something else. Do I really have to put on all this PPE to do this procedure? And, and it's, that part is fatiguing. It gets old. But then I say, you know, I have to stop myself and look at what the other side is and say, well, if I don't, and this person has uh, COVID-19 and they cough directly in my face, um, things may get very, very serious for me, for my family, uh, for the people I've come in contact with the rest of my day. So um, you have to ki- kind of make yourself um, examine consequences constantly. And that's the fatiguing part, um, because you sort of wish for the day when you could be a little bit blasé about all of this stuff, which I was for probably the first 14 years of my career. Um, <laughs> and and now... Um, that sense of uh, of invulnerability, of um, wanting to be the you know rush into the room to care for the patient, um, is tempered by this idea that if if I'm not careful, I might not be able to care for any patients anymore, and I may be putting other people at risk. So that's the thing that that sort of keeps me on uh, on the straight and narrow. Eustace, we attended our first mass in uh, what? 10 weeks today. We were at the same Mass, thanks be to God. After Mass, somebody asked me a question. I won't tell you how how I answered it, but I'd like to know how would you have answered it. And it was, so how long do you think we're going to have to do this mask thing at Mass, Tom? What would you say, Eustace? I think I would say, I do not know. Um, and, And I could say that with all candor, because we are looking at this thing um, on a days to weeks timeline, not on a, um, and we're watching these trends very, very closely. So, you know, all it takes is one outbreak and then the world changes again, you know, uh, an outbreak within a church or right. uh, within a hair salon or something. And then you have to reevaluate process. You can't, um, you can't say, well, it was really nice to be at mass. So we're going to continue to go. And so I think the prudence, um, and the guidance that's, uh, being offered uh, is allowing us to slow the process down so we can actually see what's happening, so we can make good decisions. You know, in our state, I think it's, it, the goal is for, for us to be, you know, sort of normalized uh, by July 4th, which is, I, I, I guess, maybe a symbolic day for all of us. But am I wedded to that? No. Um, none of us can be wedded to it. We just sort of have to look at the data, look at what's happening. Um, our, our church today was probably at 10 or 15% capacity. Um, and as that capacity increases, we're going to see changes in trends, I think. And, and we just have to be smart enough to uh, not pull back too soon and to not put undue burden on people. And that's going to take a lot of prayer and wisdom. It's tricky because I think inconsistency promotes cynicism and then cynicism promotes kind of sloppiness and rebellion, you might say, but. Right. Know, right. And, and I think that I'm, I'm seeing very, very few people who are in the camp of we must remain locked down forever. And I'm seeing very <laughs> few people in the camp of uh, we're not going to do any sort of mitigation at all. Mm. Um, those are the, both of those camps. Uh, interestingly enough, seem to get the most media attention. Um, yes. But I don't think that there are any reasonable people who are, saying open everything up, no social distancing, no mitigation. Um, but with as something as intimate as, as the mass, where 
um, there is, you know, uh, reception of the Lord either in the hands or on the tongue, um, there, there is risk associated with it. Uh, there is an intimacy of worship, which is great. It's what we've all missed. Um, but there is, uh, to pretend that that's a risk-free environment would, would, not be, would not be prudent. Yeah, good point. I, I know in our own family, uh, my wife and I's mothers live with us, and we convinced them not to go to Mass uh, this morning, explaining that the mask at the Mass doesn't protect them. It protects their neighbor. And it was a risk that just doesn't seem to make sense for those people that are in at-risk populations, at least. Right, right. And, and that answer as to what the timeline is, is also going to depend on what happens with, uh, with the variety of clinical trials. What happens with drug development? What if somebody stumbles onto something um, and, uh, that, that really changes the natural history of this disease? And, and I think that that's, um, an important thing to keep reemphasizing is that we're not in a static environment. We're in a, in a very dynamic mm-hmm. environment where things are changing um, really rapidly. That's a great point, Eustace. I think one of the big takeaways from the pandemic will have to be that it has not been a universal disease. That is to say, it doesn't spread the same way in San Antonio, Texas, as it does in New York City. Um, and that's not necessarily a science thing that we would automatically attribute, but I think we're learning. And then hopefully, as I think Indiana is, is doing a good job, our reopenings will reflect that knowledge. That reopening for New York, reopening for Chicago is probably not going to look like North Dakota uh, or Northeastern Indiana for that matter. Right, right. And, and you, we've got all of these, these um little labs across our state, you know, they're all kind of little micro environments to um, see what happens, what works, what doesn't work. And, and I think, you know, maybe we've created this false God about of, of research science that, you know, science can give us the answer and this is what the answer should be. And that's what it is, you know? So at the beginning of the pandemic, I would have thought, you know, patients with asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are at much higher risk and I probably would not have put uh, diabetes and high blood pressure at the very top of the list. Mm. You know, I was just reading, looking at some of the data from Wuhan uh, province. Um, and, you know, it was like 0.9% of their patients who were admitted to the hospital had the underlying condition of asthma. Yes. And there, which is much more a, a, than how much of the population has it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then there was another uh, um, uh, paper... Uh, published um, just last month, which looked at, you know, last, last time we talked, we talked about this ACE2 receptor that is the port of entry for the virus yes. into the body. And that patients with asthma, um, when they analyze what the stuff they cough up, they have a lot fewer ACE2 receptors. Um, so maybe there's something there. It seems like uh, kids have fewer ACE2 receptors. So there are things that we are learning as we go along um, that are sort of, you know, breaking paradigms, um, giving us a little bit of humility, helping us to not be so dogmatic about a, a particular treatment approach or a particular demographic that's going to be affected versus not affected. And, uh, and we, can, we can learn a lot. It's a, it's a great opportunity uh, to, um, to seek the truth with humility, I think. Yeah. We may actually get better as researchers and scientists when this is over. I was just thinking I could see the, you know, the ads for North Dakota coming out later this year that say, move to North Dakota. It's the safest place in America. 
uh, as we look at their yeah. curve that, that was always flat from the very beginning. And I don't think anyone right. expected that, but um, it's, sometimes it's good to be from North Dakota. Well, you know, it's, it's a good time to emphasize this principle of subsidiarity, you know, mm. that things are best decided on the smallest, most local level possible, you know, the, the family, the local government, the state government, and they have a, a better understanding of what, of what their people need and what's appropriate for them. And you look at some of the states that, um, that sort of went against the grain uh, and, and the expectations, the predictions that, uh, that, they would, uh, that they were courting disaster um, and, and those turned out to be untrue, um, thank God. Uh, but it, it points to this idea that America is such a, a vast space and, and people uh, govern the way they do because they understand the people um, who have put them in those positions. So, um, you know, for those governors who went against the grain, kudos to them um, because they looked at the data and made the best decision they could make on a local level for their people. And it seems to have been the right one. You know, in the spirit of confession, I, I have to remember <laughs> uh, when I first heard, maybe it was in February, uh, potential for 100,000 deaths. I remember thinking that is mathematics gone wild. There's just no way. And here we are, 96-ish thousand uh, deaths in America. We'll, we'll easily make that 100,000 mark. So it's humbling, uh, but I certainly didn't believe it when it first started. I think that, you know, a lot of us did not. I mean, when you look at the statements um, from uh, many of the experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, who, as you know, I believe into February was not anticipating that this was going to be much of a disruption in American life. I think that's his was his direct quote. Um, we think about it, and and I think that I, for one, had a certain amount of hubris about it. Like this could not possibly happen here. Hmm. Um, and, and I was clearly wrong. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's something where, um, it's a hopefully once in a lifetime experience, uh, and, and we have a real opportunity, uh, again, to kind of rededicate ourselves to, to seeking the truth and to having, um, humility and to being intellectually honest. And to trusting our own senses about, you know, okay, what's happening in the IC? What's happening to my patient? What am I observing? And, and those things have been, um, you know, very fruitful in terms of, of how we go forward. In, in the face of all of this uh, ugly human tragedy, there's still this opportunity uh, to learn and grow and be better and to be better stewards of, of as healthcare providers of, of the lives that are put in our hands. Um, and so, so that's been sort of a, a bit of a, a silver lining. Eustace, how do you think if there is a surge of cases in the fall, hospitals, states, communities will be better prepared to handle it than we were in the, the late winter and early spring? So a couple of things. I think that we are going to be much more amped up in terms of our ability to rapidly identify and isolate patients. I think that our attention to PPE, making sure we're stockpiling, and we're all um, up, up to speed on what we need, where we need it, and what zones of care we're going to have um, for these patients, whether it's going to be step-down, regular hospital bed, or an intensive care unit, we're going to be, I think, ready to go. I think the idea of testing and the rapidity with which 
we get testing is going to change. So at the beginning of this, uh, we would send a swab to the state and it might be three or four days um, before we heard anything. And during that time, we were consuming resources, PPE, you know, the protective equipment. Now we're at a point where we um, have an in-house test. Uh, we can know in a matter of hours whether or not our patient is positive or negative, and we can triage and separate quickly. Um, I think we're going to be a lot smarter also about co-infection. So we had this idea that if somebody had influenza, they couldn't possibly have COVID-19. Uh, or if they had rhinovirus, they couldn't possibly have COVID-19. And we're, we're going to be a lot smarter about that. We're going to be looking for co-infection and trying to understand that interplay. Um, and then I think the, the last piece in terms of caring for the critically ill, what is the best way to ventilate these patients? Um, when is the right time to start proning them? When is the, what's the best sedation strategy for them when they're, when they're so sick? What are the right drugs to give them and when should we give them remdesivir or convalescent plasma? Hopefully we'll know some of these things. There uh, was a report out yesterday uh, that um, the uh, government has entered into a contract with AstraZeneca um, who is working currently on a vaccine. Um, and the vaccine, they, they say if they're, if they're successful, um, they could have as many as uh, 300 million doses available by October, which That's, is astonishing. Yeah, Operation Warp astonishing. Speed, right? Right, right. Um, so uh, this AstraZeneca is the fourth firm, uh, research firm that's uh, been engaged by uh, our FDA to work on, um, on development of vaccine. Now, you know, we always have to be very conscious of how that vaccine gets developed and and that that comports with the highest ethical standards um, and have to think really hard about what um, what that means for the population. And um, so if a if a vaccine is available and present and, and possible and uh, efficacious, then we have to think about like how that might change our response uh, come the November, December. And just from a very practical standpoint, we should remind listeners, it takes a long time to get a vaccine working as it should, because we have, all of the things that have to be figured out take so much time. Does it confer immunity? And if it does, how long? And, and does it have any untoward side effects that, that we didn't expect? Those things all take the one thing that nobody wants, and that is time. So we really right. have to be patient with that. Right. And so, you know, we have the example of, of uh, the vaccines that were tried with SARS and MERS-CoV, which did create neutralizing antibodies, right? Um, but they uh, dissipated at 28 months. So um, we're probably not looking at a vaccine that is going to confer lifelong immunity um, and not one that's going to completely eliminate illness. It's probably going to be something more similar to an influenza vaccine where you might still get it, might reduce the severity of disease, mm. um, but might also allow you to feel a little more comfortable going uh, back to work or to be uh, being in uh, more socially proximate uh, situations. Yeah, but based on the, uh, the way that influenza vaccine mutates so rapidly, coronavirus mm -hmm. doesn't mutate as rapidly, so it should be more robust in theory than the current flu vaccine. 
Right. I, I agree with you there. I, I just um, think that sometimes when we think about vaccine, uh, immediately we think freedom from the disease yes. or freedom from symptoms. And I, I think that that would be a, a wrong assumption. We've been so spoiled by most of the childhood vaccines. I mean, that's, right, we, right. that's our, our measure. Eustace, I know that you've kept up with some of the things we've talked about on other episodes of Dr. Doctor. I'm curious if there's any things you'd like to correct, to, to amplify, to contradict uh, that you've heard in the last month or so. Not that we would be so. Oh, no, they've all been absolutely wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think that, uh, you know, of of all of them, I think that an acknowledgement of modeling as the imperfect science it is, is really important. I think um, the discussion regarding Sweden, I think we talked about maybe I maybe I uh, I heard it a little bit differently. but I, I really think that the Swedish model probably took some measures. They did, you know, they did, uh, didn't take a completely hands off. We're not closing anything. Right. Um, but I think their, their response was probably more thoughtful, um, than, than I had understood it to be. Um, and, and, uh, have looked at a couple interviews from the policymakers who have, uh, taken this on and, um, but by and large, I think it's been a very balanced discussion um, with everybody acknowledging um, we are kind of playing with the big knobs uh, as far as this disease is concerned. And, and there's lots of fine tuning to be done. Um, but it's been it's been a really useful forum, um, drawing expertise from a lot of places where, where I wouldn't um, I wouldn't uh, dare to tread you know, <laughs> as a as a as a clinician. Eustace, your comment about Sweden is excellent because after that interview, I saw one of those 10-minute YouTube interviews with, uh, the last name was Tagnell. I think he might be the chief epidemiologist yeah, for Sweden. Right. And, you're, and he was in a train station. And you're right. They did take much more uh, action than I thought based on other things that I had read. So it was really good, as you said, going to the horse's mouth and finding out, yes, they did do some mitigation strategies. Uh, one of the frustrating things I read about is they did not track school infections, which would have been a huge help to the rest of the world because they, for the most part, kept school in, but we don't know what the impact was. Right, right. And there, there have been um, very small studies that have looked at you know, virus transmission and, and viral loads in children, and they seem lower. But, but does that make anybody feel safe about resuming schools full on, particularly if you might have adults working who might be vulnerable? Well, I, I don't know. I, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. We don't have the answer to it. The other thing that was interesting about Technel's interview was um, how surprised they were by the deaths and the concentration within um, nursing homes. Uh, their nursing homes and, and how that was the next uh, area that they really needed to focus on is how to um, keep those who live in their elderly homes uh, safer and and deal with um, you know the the vast majority of deaths which we're seeing you know in in uh, in those nursing home environments. Eustace, how have you changed, if at all, the amount and type of social distancing that you yourself practice and you have your family members practice? That's a tough one. I mean, within our family, you know, we have five kids and, and, uh, and I, I hope to remain happily married until I'm in a pine box. So, so we have, 
tried to keep the social fabric of our marriage as intact as possible. Um, the behaviors when I come in the door, um, you know, changing clothes, showering immediately, all of that stuff still happens. Um, slowly, we are beginning to uh, venture out in very, very small groups with, with um, friends and things like that. You know, people need other people. Um, and, uh, and most of those events, as the weather improves, are, are outside. Um, if we're inside, uh, we're masked with others. If we're in closed um, spaces, we are masked. Um, but there's an acknowledgement that, that the risk of spread of this virus um, when you're outside is, is really, really low. Yes. And even lower if you socially distance and even lower still if you mask. So um, I think we're just trying to make as prudent a judgment as possible. If someone is sick, they stay home. If someone uh, is vulnerable, they stay home. And, uh, and so we're, we're still in this weird space where we're trying to figure out um, how to maintain those, um, those, that social fabric, that connectedness you need to other people um, within your family and outside your family uh, to, to really flourish. Um, you know, I talk with my patients a lot. It's kind of funny. We have a, uh, when we're talking about goals of care, we, you know, we say, well, we're doing all of this stuff so you can flourish as a human. Um, and, and the, those, I use those words purposely because I want them to think about like, what are their goals? What makes them happy? Uh, what do they find fulfillment in? What fulfills others who are around them? And, and we, we sit together and we choose treatments based on, on those kinds of things. Not, not just fixing numbers and, and so on. Uh, so I think, I think for our family and for our friends, those are the kinds of things that we've, we've really kind of focused on. Eustace, that reminds me of our uh, Catholic Medical Association and ICU friend, Dr. Wes Ely. He has this one saying he taught me, it's not, and he does this with his residents, and he also works in ICU like you, so our yeah. listeners know that. He says, don't ask what's the matter with the patient but ask the patient what matters to them. And that's exactly what right. you just described. Right, right. And, and you know, I, I've had some correspondence with Wes, and he's been uh, a real source of, um, of knowledge for me um, and, and support. And so, you know, I think that um, those are the kinds of things that we, uh, we try and, and convey to our patients and to the students who are with us. And, and now, you know, we're, we're, re-examining those as families and as a culture, what makes us happy, what's important to us. Um, you know, simple questions like, uh, when can I hug grandma again, are really, really hard to answer. And uh, trying to make those things safe, trying to make the best judgment, trying to keep everybody as safe as possible um, is really hard to do. Uh, but I, I gotta say, um, I, gotta, I gotta say that if, if we go slow, um, we have a better chance at kind of making things as good as possible and as low risk as possible and making as, as few unforced errors as possible. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't we love to say no one's ever going to get sick from this disease again? No one's ever going to transmit it to another person, but that's just not reality. So to control the things we can um, and to give the rest to God is probably uh, what we are um, where we're going to where we're going to land in all of this and we would add to give us the wisdom to understand the difference between those two groups right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly 
So Eustace, in, in wrapping up, are there any final comments? If there aren't, what you just said were great, but if any final comments you want people to, to know about uh, this stage of the pandemic? Here we are on, uh, what is it, May 24th, 2020. Yeah, I, I think everybody kind of has to, has to kind of hug the cactus of not really knowing what's going on as we, as we reopen things. So when we were on high alert and on, on shelter in place, we knew what that was. Now, as we enter into this kind of weird, ambiguous environment where we're starting some activities, we're starting some social gatherings, um, we have to kind of maintain a certain amount of flexibility um, and, uh, and honesty about what's actually happening be very adaptable creatures, prepare for change, and keep our eyes wide open. I think we have to be willing to move slowly, although, you know, our heart's desire is, is, uh, is to run as quickly as we can back to what we considered normal previously. And I think those are the kinds of things that are going to keep as many people as safe as possible for as long as possible. And, and you know, the... the um, the constant encouragement to pray, to seek wisdom, and to ask for um, wisdom, particularly in small decisions, um, you know, uh, in day-to-day life as we, as we open things up. I think those are the things that are going to give us peace at the end of the day. Eustace, thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. Thank you, our listeners, for also being with us on the award-winning official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And please share the good news from Dr. Fernandez as well as the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app or always at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.